We'll turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9 as we continue, of course, our study on the Gospel of Luke. We've been going through it, of course, verse by verse, passage by passage. Luke shows Jesus as the Son of God. He shows him as the perfect man, the Christ, the Messiah. As we continue this morning, we're seeing Jesus give some instructions. And he gives them to his disciples, and it's very powerful because we're seeing a turning point in the life and ministry of Christ. See, up to this point, Jesus has been proclaiming that he's the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. But he's going to have a change here because what he's going to do is he's going to announce to his men his coming death and resurrection. He begins to prepare his men for his departure because he says that, that, that he's going to Jerusalem and die and that, that they're going to continue after him as his representatives. And so he now goes to Jerusalem to die and rise again. As we think about it, what has happened? Jesus Christ came to the earth, died on the cross, paid for sin, rose again. He has conquered death. He gives eternal life to all who believes. He has returned to the Father and has left each one of us to be his representatives to carry on the ministry. Well, this morning we're going to see Jesus telling of his coming death and resurrection and he's going to talk about discipleship. And uh, the goal, of course, is that we'd be challenged by this passage. Well, as we begin, let me raise the question. Who is Jesus Christ? That's the question. This is the question that's been asked for centuries. People say, well, what about that Jesus of Nazareth, the Jewish man who lived in the first century? Who is this man? Last time we saw Herod Antipas raise the same question, Luke chapter 9, verse 9. He says, who is this man about whom I hear such things? Who is Jesus? Was he a good man? I mean, think about it. Was he a good man? Some people say, yeah, he's a good man. He did nice things. He, did, he went around doing good. Was he a great teacher? I mean, nobody taught like Jesus. There people would go and listen to him and they'd come back and they'd say, he taught as one having authority. And then sometimes they'd say, nobody's ever taught this way. Was he a prophet announcing the word of God, saying, thus says the Lord, standing for the truth? Was he a crazy man? I mean, claiming to be God? I mean, the Jewish people said, we've we, we, we got to put him to death because he's a normal man and he's claimed to be God. Was he crazy? Was he a martyr? Did he, was he a man who just had this message and idea and died for that? Was he the Son of God, the Savior, the Christ, the one sent by God to be the Savior of the world? So who is Jesus? And here's the question, who do you say that he is? What you believe about Jesus will shape your life and your destiny. As we continue in our study this morning, it's a turning point. Jesus now begins to move toward Jerusalem and his death and resurrection for the sins of the world. And he's going to start preparing his men for his departure. And we see what we call his call to discipleship of these men. And we want to take a look a little bit later on in the study. What does it mean to be a disciple? How does that fit? Well, let's begin. We've been seeing so much as we've looked at Jesus. He's carrying on in the ministry. He's been in the northern part of Israel and, and uh, around the Sea of Galilee. We've seen his ministry by his words and his works. By his ministry, by his words. That's his message, that he's the Messiah and the Savior and that salvation is by faith. We've seen it by his works, which is his miracles. He showed his authority over nature and over demons, over death, and even the forgiveness of sins. Well, as we think about this this morning, especially since it's a turning point, let me remind you of the key of the Gospel of Luke. You remember that the Gospel of Luke, Luke presents Jesus as the perfect man who has come as the substitute and the Savior for the sins of the world. He dies on the cross, pays for sin, rise again, conquering death, and giving eternal life 
to all who believe. That's the story of the Gospel of Luke. And this is the story, of course, of, of any of the Gospels. As you go through it, you see the same information. Let me break down the passage for you this morning. We're going to look at verses 18 through 27. The first part of it, Jesus raises some questions, a couple of questions about his person. That's what we see. Then in verses 21 and 22, he declares his coming death and resurrection, talks about his sacrifice. And then the call to discipleship in verses 23 through 27. We're going to spend some time on this because it's pretty important. And we're going to see his service, meaning the service for him. And we'll see how that fits together. So there's some great things in his passage this morning, things that we can make application. As we begin, let's remember where we are. The event that, that uh, where we are now follows his feeding of, and we always say, feeding of the 5,000. We know that we talked about it last week. There were 5,000 men. That was not counting the women and the children. There could have easily been 20,000 people that Jesus fed with five loaves and two fish. You remember the loaves were little, like little biscuits and two little bitty fish. So with that little bit of food, he fed possibly 20,000 people. We saw a great truth about Jesus in the fact that he's the provider. And we saw this last time. As a provider, he can and will use anyone or anything. And he'll do that in our lives, and he does it all the time. Second, he always provides for our needs. His promise is, my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4.19. That's the truth. But there's something else there. He always provides more than we need. He provides exceedingly, abundantly, beyond what you could ask for. Or imagine now, that's what we saw last time, and it was so powerful to think about that He'll provide for us. He, he can use anybody, anywhere, anything, and He always provides what we need. He always provides even more than we need. From this, there's going to be a change in direction. We're going to see first of all a couple of questions that Jesus asked, and then we're going to see that He tells them about His coming death. Look at verse 18. And it happened that while He was praying alone, His disciples were with Him, and He questioned them, saying, "Who do people say that I am?" Now it happened, notice this verse says, it happened that while he was praying alone. We realize this is a pattern that Jesus does all the time. He's always praying by himself. He'll, he'll get off early in the morning, sometimes at other times. He gets off and he maintains his fellowship with the Father. We saw one time earlier in the Gospel of Luke that it was very early in the morning. He was off. The people started trying to find him. He was off by himself. We saw that that's his pattern. And I think it's a great pattern for us. That just as Jesus, who is the perfect Son of God, would meet on a regular basis with his heavenly Father to maintain that fellowship, we as children of God need to meet on an ongoing basis, meet to meet regularly with our heavenly Father. A good time would be in the mornings, but any time that we can get day off by ourselves and spend time with him, we should do that. Notice it says his disciples were with him. It happened that while he was praying alone and the disciples were with him, obviously he was alone, and then they came to be with him, and he questioned them, saying, Who do the people... People say that I am. Now, his disciples come to be with him, and he raises two questions to them. And look at the questions. The first one is, who do the people say that I am? And the second one is, who do you say that I am? So you can see the questions. One is, he says, what are the people saying about me? And then they tell him. And then he says, what do you say about me? It's pretty powerful. Well, let's note it. Look at verse 19 again. Or verse 18. It says, It happened that while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he questioned them, saying, Who do the people say that I am? That's the first question. What do the crowd say? Notice carefully. We've seen this answer before. Verse 19. They answered and said, Some think you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. But others that one of the, one of the prophets of old has risen again. 
Now, some said John the Baptist, because remember, John the Baptist had this ministry, pointed out Jesus or whatever, but he was killed by Herod, and, and all these things were happening. So some people think maybe John came back from the dead. Others say Elijah, because the, everybody knows the tradition was that Elijah would, be, would come before the Messiah, and so maybe Jesus is Elijah, that's what some of them think. And then some say, well, he's just one of the prophets of old who's, who's come back, you know, who's risen, uh, who's risen again. Now, there's two things I want you to think about. Number one, they are saying the exact same thing that they've been saying, that people have been saying. They say, what do the people say about me? Here's what they say. Look back, if you would, at chapter 9. Chapter 9, look at verse 7. Now, Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was happening, heard about all that Jesus was doing and his men. He was greatly perplexed because some said, it was said by some, that John had risen from the dead, by others that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen again. Now, that's the exact same message. So Jesus turns to his guys and says, Listen, what do the crowds, what are the multitudes, who do they say that I am? What are they saying about me? And they said, Well, some people think you're John the Baptist. Some people think you're Elijah, and some people think you're one of the prophets. Now, the second thing I want you to think about, not only are they saying the same thing, but nobody's saying that he's the Messiah. I mean, have you noticed that? They didn't say, well, some people think you're the Messiah, some people think you're John, some people think you're Elijah. They didn't say that. You realize that as a whole, the Jewish people did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, there are individual Jewish people trusting in Christ all the time as he goes through his ministry. They're trusting in Jesus. But the religious leaders and the nation as a whole, if you ask them, do you think Jesus is the Messiah? They would say, no, we do not. He might be John. He might be Elijah. He might be something. But we don't think he's the Messiah. So then Jesus raises the second question. Verse 20. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. Now, look at the second question. He says, okay, so everybody out there, they don't have a clue. <laughs> okay, who do you say that I am? Who do you think of me? Now, he's asking his plural, by the way, when he says, who do you? It's plural. He's asking his whole group of guys. Of course, who's going to answer? Peter is, because Peter always is the first guy to talk. He's always the first guy. Sometimes he's right. Sometimes he's wrong. It just so happens this time he's right. He does really good today. And, and, and there's going to be another time Jesus asks something and he gets it right. And then immediately after it, he gets it wrong. That's just like us, isn't it? Sometimes we go, I oh, got it. <laughs> and then we say something else. We say, no, I missed it. So here's what Peter does. Look what he says. It says, um, he said to them, verse 20, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. Of God. Now, Matthew also tells us that he said, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, when he called Jesus the Christ, he was declaring that Jesus was the Son of God, that Jesus was the Savior, that Jesus was the one sent by the Father as the Savior of mankind. Now, I want you to notice the word Christ. The word Christ is a Greek word. The Greek word is Christos, and it means the anointed one. It's the same word as the Old Testament word Mashiach, which we get the word Messiah from. It's a Hebrew word, which means the anointed one. So the name Christ and Messiah are the same name. One's Hebrew, one's Greek. And it means the anointed one of God or the one chosen by God. And so when he says, you're the Christ of God, he's saying, you're the promised one of God. You're the one that God said was, he was going to send to deal with mankind's sins. 
We see in God's Word that He had promised a Savior, that man had sinned and come short of the glory of God. We know that. We've all sinned. God in His love has provided a Savior. And the promise beginning in Adam and Eve, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Judah, to David, all the way down, there's this promised one coming. Peter says, Jesus, you're the one. You're the Savior. Peter's answer is correct. He is the Messiah and Savior. Now, here's a question that I have. What do you say about Jesus? If somebody said to you, who do you think Jesus is? What would you say? Would you say, he's a good man? Would you say he's a great teacher? Would you say he was a prophet? Or would you say he is the Son of God? The Messiah, the Savior, the one who came to the earth and died on the cross and paid for sin and rose again, the one who gives us eternal life simply by faith. That's what I hope everyone in this room would say. Well, from this, because he he raises those questions, from this he warns them. He tells them about the future. He says he's going to go to Jerusalem and he's going to die and rise again. It's powerful. Look what he says. Here's his contrast. But he warned them. He warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone. I want you to notice the change. Up to this point in time, they've been going out telling everyone that Jesus is the Messiah. From this point, he's going to change. He says, from now on, don't tell this. You go, don't tell this. Why? Because he's on his way to Jerusalem. There's a lot of the book of Luke left. I mean, a lot. But most of the gospel of Luke, as of most of the gospels, all concentrate on about the final week of Jesus' life. And so we're going to start narrowing it down to Jesus going toward Jerusalem. And so he says, he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone. Now that doesn't mean they're not going to continue to tell that Jesus is the Christ. Because we're going to see in chapter 10, he sends out 70-something people to do this. But as a whole, what he's saying is, the ministry's changing. I'm now looking toward Jerusalem. I'm going to die. I'm going to pay for sins. I'm going to rise again. Look at chapter 9, verse 51. Just look what he says. Same chapter, right toward the end. When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. Go back to our verse. You realize six more times in the Gospel of Luke, he tells us he's on the way to Jerusalem. That's his point. The rest of the book, he's going to Jerusalem. Why? Well, he's going to tell us. Look what he says. He warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone, saying, here's what's going to happen. The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised up on the third day. He says, calling himself the Son of Man. That's the Messiah. He says he's going to suffer. When you think of the suffering of Christ, and people sometimes talk about the passion of Christ, the suffering of Christ, what is it? Well, there are three things here that stand out. He's going to be rejected, he's going to be killed, and he's going to be raised up. Notice the verse. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed and be raised up on the third day. That's the suffering of Christ. Let's look at it. Let's think first of all about being rejected. The word rejected literally means to be regarded as unworthy. That's what it means. It would be like you have two things. You go, this one, um, I don't want this one. This one, that's not good enough. You rejected it. That's what that word means. The, the Jewish leaders and the Jewish nation looked at Jesus and said, he's not what we want. He's not good enough for us. He's not, it's not what we want. 
He said that he would go and he would be rejected. You know that he offered himself as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He offered himself as the King of Israel and the Messiah and the Savior. And as a nation, the Jewish people rejected him. Look what it says. It says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected. How? By the elders, that was the leaders, the chief priests, that were, of course, the priests, the scribes, that were the scholars. So the religious people and the normal people as a whole rejected him. John 1.11 says he came into his own and his own Jewish people received him not. They did not receive him. So he's going to be rejected. The second thing, he'll be killed. He'll be killed. He'd be put to death. You realize prophesied almost a thousand years before this time, King David prophesied that the Messiah would die by crucifixion. 600 years before this event, the prophet Isaiah said he would be wounded, bruised, and crushed for our iniquities. Jesus said, I'm going to the cross and die. He would die on the cross for our sins. His death was not an accident. It was planned. It was the payment for the sins of the world. There's a third thing. He'd be rejected, he'd be killed, and he would be raised up. Now, this is powerful. Notice what it says, and be raised up on the third day. He's going to die and rise again. He would not stay dead. Psalm, Psalm, woo, uh, that dead is powerful. Psalm 1610, <laughs> Psalm 16 said, said the Messiah would not see corruption. That he would die, but he would not stay dead. Jesus said, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be rejected by the religious leaders. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to die on a cross. And then I'm going to rise again three days later. He is the anointed one of God. He is the one who died and rose again for sin. And let me tell you this. I hope and pray that every one of you in this room have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior. That you understand that Jesus is the anointed one. He is the one promised by God. He came to this earth. He died on the cross. He took your sins upon himself. He paid the penalty. He died on the cross. He was buried. He rose again after three days. He ascended back into heaven in his right hand of the Father. And he offers to any one of us eternal life as a gift simply by faith. And I hope and pray that every one of you in this room, that you have already believed in Jesus Christ as your Savior. If you have not, right where you're sitting, you can trust in Him for eternal life. You believe that He died for you and paid for your sins and rose again and that He will give you eternal life. And by the authority of the Scripture, the moment you believe in Him, He gives you that moment eternal life. I hope and pray every one of us in this room have trusted in Jesus Christ. Well, he tells them, listen, what do the people say about me? Okay, well, let me tell you this. Uh, I don't want you to talk about it anymore because I'm fixing to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to die on the cross and I'm going to rise again. From this, Jesus makes a change. He's talked about the salvation there. What he's going to do, he's going to die and rise again. And now he's going to give a charge to them, a charge to them to be his disciples and for, for all people to be disciples. And as we look at this, uh, we, we need to have an understanding uh, on this call to discipleship. I think the next slide says we need to have an understanding about discipleship. And I want you to realize there's a difference between salvation and discipleship. And you need to understand that. There are a lot of people who don't understand that and they have it confused. I want you to understand, first of all, salvation 
salvation. Salvation comes simply by faith. It is a gift. It costs us absolutely nothing. We get eternal life by faith when we trust in Jesus Christ. The cost is Christ. It's not for us. Every one of us in this room, we believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior. He gives us eternal life. It's not what we do. It's not what we keep doing. It's not what we promise on doing. It is taking the gift of eternal life. That's salvation. Discipleship cost us. It comes by faithfulness. It's our works. It's our service. It costs us our lives. As we say to God, God, I want my life to count for you. The difference between salvation and discipleship, salvation is a gift given to us by faith. Discipleship is our service, our ministry. Jesus Christ died for us. That's eternal life. That's salvation. We die to self. We live for Christ. That's discipleship. And we're going to talk more about it in just a second. Notice what it goes on to say. And he was saying to them, verse 23, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Now, he says, if, and it's true, if some people are going to come after me, now I want you to understand that coming after Jesus, following Jesus, is discipleship. See, salvation is trusting Christ as Savior. Discipleship is following Christ. Some people are confused and they'll say, you need to follow Jesus in order to be saved. No, you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior to be saved and you follow Jesus as a disciple. Notice what he says. He says, if anyone wishes to come after me, that's coming, you know, follow me, he must do three things. Look at the three things. Here's the first one. To be called a disciple, we must deny self. Let me read them all to you and then we'll get them one at a time. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. That's number one. He must take up his cross daily. That's number two. And must follow me. That's number three. The first one is deny self. When we talk about deny self, what we're saying is, I'm not going to live for myself. I'm going to live for Christ. You deny yourself by saying, I'm not going through this life figuring out what's best for me. I'm going through this life saying, whatever you want me to do, Lord, I will do it. I'm giving up my life in that sense. I'm denying myself. That's what discipleship is. It has nothing to do with salvation. So we must deny ourselves. Look at the second one. Take up his cross. Take up his cross daily is what he says. Now, to take up the cross means to die to yourself. Now, nowadays, people have crosses on their rings and crosses around their necks and cross earrings, and it's a piece of jewelry. But at that day and time, to say the cross was not a piece of jewelry. It was a way that people were put to death. It was a way of execution. It was a way of shame. And when he says, take up your cross, that's where people died. He's saying, you must die to yourself. That's why the Romans passage, Romans 12:1, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices. You give your life to God as a sacrifice. You die to yourself. You give up your life. That's what it means to take up your cross. At a point in time, somewhere in your life as a believer, you can say to God, I want my life to count for you. I give it up for you. That's what he's talking about. The third thing is to follow me, to follow Christ, to live according to the Scripture. To live for your Savior. So discipleship is dying to yourself and living for Christ. Now that costs you. That's not salvation. Any, anybody can believe in Jesus Christ and have eternal life and live forever with Jesus. But if you want your life to count, we're going to see some other things in just a second. You need to say to him, Lord, I want my life to count for you. This is discipleship and this is the charge. He says, if anyone wishes to come after me, you're going to have to deny yourself. You're going to have to take up your cross and you're going to have to follow me. Salvation costs us nothing. Discipleship costs us our lives. 
Now, there's some more about it because there's this paradox about our lives. Notice what he says in the next verse. He says, For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, and whoever wishes, whoever loses his life for my sake is the one who saves it. See, when he says, Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, save your life means I'm going to live, I'm saving my life for me. I'm going to do what I want to do. If you save your life, you will lose it. You're losing the opportunity to serve your Savior. He's saying if you decide that you're going to save your life, you're going to live for you, you're going to do what you want to do, you will lose it. Because this is the opportunity you have now to live for Christ. This is the time. And if you live for you and don't live for Him, you lost your opportunity. So he says, whoever wishes to save his life, live for yourself, you're going to lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake says, I give up my life, I give it to you. He is the one who saves it because you have the opportunity to gain it for the service of our Savior. And so look at this. If you live for self, you lose your life. If you live for Christ, you gain your life. Now let me tell you something. I hope every one of you in this room have believed in Jesus Christ for eternal life and you have the gift of eternal life. cost you nothing. But what I also hope is that every one of us who know Christ as Savior, you are coming to the point where you say, Lord, I want my life to count for you. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to deny myself. I'm going to take up my cross. And I'm going to follow you. And I'm going to live for you. And I want my life to count for you. And let me tell you, you'll never be the same. And one day when you stand before your Savior, He's going to say, well done. Because see, you could say, what difference does it make if I have eternal life? If I'm going to heaven just by faith and it's a gift, why do I even need to serve Him? Because He's going to reward you. Notice what these verses say. Look at the next one. What does it profit what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? He's saying, what is the profit if you gained everything in this old temporal world, but you lose the opportunity to serve Christ? What have you got? you got nothing because the world is temporary and it's temporal and it's going to be gone. This is the time now that you have to live for Christ. Notice what else he says in verse 26. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. What does it mean to be ashamed of Christ? It means you don't stand for him. You don't live for him. We're not talking about salvation. We're saying as a believer, if you don't live for him, if you don't say my life is his, I'm going to serve him, you're ashamed of him. There are many believers who are ashamed of Christ because they don't live for him. They don't serve him. What's going to happen? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. When Jesus Christ comes, we won't have the rewards. See, every believer is going to stand before their Savior. And he's going to reward you based on how you served him. And if you live for self, you lost your life of service. And if you give up your life, you gained your life of service. And when you stand before him, if you served him, he's going to say, well done. And if you were ashamed of him and didn't serve him, he's going to be ashamed of you when, he, when you stand before him. First John chapter 2 says, we might be ashamed at his coming. So you don't want to be ashamed. You don't want him to be ashamed of you. You want to hear him say, well done. And the only way that's going to happen is you say, Lord, I want my life to count for you. I know I have eternal life. It's a gift. It costs me nothing. I don't have to do anything or, or anything to keep it or anything. I have eternal life. But while I'm on this earth, I want my life to count for you. From this day forward, 
I give you my life in service. I want my life to count for you. That's what he's telling them. It's very powerful. One day, each one of us will stand before our Savior. What will he say? Well done? Or will there be shame? If we don't live for him, if we do live for him here and now, we'll be rewarded. If we don't live for him here and now, we will not be rewarded. Notice it says, when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels, Matthew 25, 31 says, when he comes in his glory and sits on his glorious throne. Now I want to end with one little statement here. We'll end with this part. We'll get to it a lot of details next week. But look what it says. But I say to you truthfully, this is his last statement to him right here, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, what he's saying is, these men standing around him, these 12, 14 men, he says, some of you will not die until you see the kingdom. Now, let me ask you a question. Every one of those guys are dead, and the kingdom hadn't come yet. What in the world is he talking about? We'll see it next week when we get to the next verse. Because we're going to see the transfiguration where Jesus is on the top of the mountain and he shows them what it's like when he's the king. Pretty powerful. What have we seen this morning? Jesus raises the question, who am I? And, and people come and, and uh, what the people say is he's John or Elijah the prophet. But Peter says he's the Christ. He tells of his coming death and resurrection. He then calls men to discipleship. He says if you save your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life, you're going to gain it. Christ will reward us when he Come. So let me give you some applications. The first one is this. Let us proclaim that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and the Savior. Let's proclaim that Jesus is the Messiah. So let's tell people who he is. Some people are confused. They think he's a good man. They think he's a teacher. They think he's some religious leader. No, who is he? He is the Messiah and the Savior. A, let's announce that he is the anointed one of God. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the one sent by God to be the Savior of the world. He's the one promised from Adam and Eve to Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Judah to David all the way through. He's the promised one. B, let's proclaim that he died and rose again. That's what he told him he was going to do. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to die and I'll rise again. That's exactly what he did. He died on the cross. He paid for sin. He was buried and he rose again, conquering death and giving eternal life. Let's proclaim to people. That's called the good news message, the gospel, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He came to be our sacrifice and our Savior uh, and our substitute. So let's proclaim that. Third, C, let's proclaim that we have eternal life by faith. It is that simple. Jesus died on the cross, paid for sin, and whoever believes in Him has eternal life. It is not our works. It is not our goodness. It is not our righteousness. It is not being baptized. It is not going to church. It is not turning over a new leaf. It is not turning away from sin. It is believing in Jesus Christ for eternal life. That's salvation. God so loved the world, that's us, that He gave His only begotten Son, Jesus, to die on the cross, pay for sin, rise again, that whosoever would what? Believe in Him would not perish but have eternal life. It is that simple. Let's proclaim that. There's a second thing I want you to think about, and let's be disciples of Christ. This is so powerful. A, understand the difference between being a believer and being a disciple. Being a believer costs us nothing. It's a gift by faith. Being a disciple costs us our lives. So understand it. B, let's offer our lives to God. It's the hardest thing. 
So you take the gift of eternal life and you go, thank you, thank you. This is great. I don't do anything. I'm going to heaven. I have eternal life. I have an eternal relationship with God. This is so wonderful. And then he says, but I want you to be my disciple. And you go, that's pretty hard. Because I'm going to have to give up everything. I'm going to have to give up my life. I'm going to have to deny myself and take up my cross, die to myself and follow you. I'm going to have to live by the scripture. I'm going to have to, I'm going to, have to offer my life as a living sacrifice. Yes, you are. It costs you. And the greatest thing you can do as a believer is say to God, I want my life to count for you. To deny yourself, to take up the cross and follow him. See, know that Jesus will reward us when he comes. When you stand before your Savior after being a disciple, he's going to say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. May we be disciples of Jesus Christ as we proclaim that he is the Messiah and the Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a passage. Thank you for these great truths. Help us, Lord, to uh, put this all together and understand it. And, and we thank you, Lord, that, uh, that we're to get to proclaim that Jesus is the Savior, that he is the anointed one, that he died and rose again, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Lord, may we be clear on that message. And, Lord, thank you that as believers we have the privilege of serving you and living for you. May we understand the difference between being a believer and being a disciple. And may we offer our lives as living sacrifices, knowing that when we stand before you, you will reward us. Thank you, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.